0: I want you to think of a time in your life when you felt that God was calling you to do something. And as that call began to become clear to you and you recognized that God really was nudging you to do this thing, you went, oh man. I'm not sure I'm up to that. I don't know if I have the strength for that. I don't know if I have the giftedness for that. I don't know if I have the courage to press in and obey the Lord in that. Have you felt that way? I've been talking with our vestry and staff this week about that very question. And one man on our vestry said, oh, I remember very well a time when I was in college and the Lord told me, I want you to go down the hall and knock on the door of that person who's not in a good place spiritually, and you know it, and he doesn't. And I know that you're even a little afraid of him, but I want you to go. He's like, am I up for that? A woman on our staff said, oh, I remember a time when I was in a job, a job that was very secure. And the Lord said to me one day at work, he said, I want you to leave. And I'm like, but Lord, I don't have another thing lined up yet. He's like, I want you to leave. She's like, I'm not that kind of person. I'm the dependable kind of people, person. And she felt like God was calling her to get out of the boat and walk on water. What is it that God has asked you to do where you weren't sure you were up to it? Some of you, I'm guessing, the fact that you're here this morning is a God moment for you. Because you are right now in that very place. And if you aren't in it yet, I can assure you, you will be. (laughs) Read the Bible, friends. This happens over and over and over. God has some, some sort of way of working where he likes to choose people who think, I'm not up for it who think I'm too weak, I'm too inadequate, I don't have what it takes, start with Moses. God says, I want you to go lead my people out of Egypt and out of their slavery. And Moses is like, I know I'm not your person. Can we just go over what happened to me the last time I was in Egypt and how disastrous that was? Send someone else. But you could look at Joshua. You could look at Gideon. You could look at Esther. And person after person who seeks to follow the Lord will be thrust into a situation where God has a call upon their life and they're like, I don't know if I can do it. And so this morning, I want us to look at a textbook case from the Scriptures of someone who was in that very situation, and I want to draw from there a word from the living God to encourage you this morning, to strengthen you this morning, to say to you that you can do it with God's help, and that if He calls you, He'll be with you. And I also... I want to talk about this word for us as a church, because as I was reading over this passage, I felt strongly that we are in a unique season as a church that is very much like this, where God has placed a great call upon us. Are we up for it? Let's look together at 1 Chronicles 28. This is a a book in which it's, it's writing the spiritual history of God's people, the nation of Israel, and And in verse 1, you see that King David, the greatest king Israel ever had, summoned all the officials of Israel to Jerusalem, and it names them all, the leaders of this, the leaders of that, the leaders over this kind of thing and that kind of thing, anyone who has a part to play, the entire national infrastructure, he gathers them together. And what does he tell them? Verse 2, he says, you know, it's been on my heart To build a temple for the Lord. David's whole life is marked as one of just, I will do anything for the living God. I live in complete abandon for him. And I can't stand the fact that for 400 years, we've been carting around the Ark of the Covenant, the holy object upon which God's presence rests, and putting it in a tent. And I'm living in a palace made out of cedar? That doesn't make sense. Lord, would you give me the chance to build a temple for your name? But in verse 3, we see that God has a different plan. God said to me, you must not build a temple to honor my name, for you're a warrior. You've had a different call. But he says, basically what God is doing is he's given David the vision. He's given David the plan. But now he's going to allow David to build the temple through others. And who is that going to be? Verse 6. He said to me, your son Solomon will build my temple, for I've chosen him. And so at in, in this major moment, he says to Solomon, standing in front of all the people, representing all the people, because they're all going to be needed if a temple is going to be built. And he says to them, verse 10, take this seriously. The Lord has chosen you to build a temple as his sanctuary. Be strong and do the work now Solomon was a young man he was in his 20s just a few pages before this David says very candidly about Solomon he's young and he's inexperienced and if Solomon has even one ounce of self-awareness he knows I'm not David There's only one, David. There's only one who went out with a slingshot and a a rock the size of a baseball and faith in the living God and took down the giant Goliath. There's only one who danced with such abandon before the ark of the Lord. There's only one who wrote songs that we use in our worship. There's only one who's led us in victory battle after victory in battle. I'm not him. Is that where you are today as you consider that God is asking you to do something that seems beyond then there's a word for you in this text. I have to say, though, that whatever plan Solomon may have had, hey, once I become king, here's what I want to do, those are all being set aside. Solomon may have wanted to build an elaborate throne out of ivory and overlay it with gold. He actually did that later. He may have wanted to add royal wives. He did that later. But right now, God is saying to Solomon, I have conscripted you. Whatever plans you had for your life and for your reign, let me tell you what they really are. You are being chosen to build this temple. Do that. Are you here this morning and your life was actually kind of going along fairly well and then God has come and has conscripted you? And you're like, how did I get here? This wasn't my plan. It was God's plan. And God says to you, if I conscript you, I consecrate you. Don't make the decision based on your comfort level, make it based on his calling. And how is Solomon feeling at this moment? I think we can get a pretty good idea when we turn over to verse 20. And David continued, be strong, because you're probably feeling weak. Be courageous because you're wobbly right now. Do the work, because right now you're thinking, could anybody else do the work? Don't be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord God, my God, is with you. Do you see that if God calls you to do something, then God will back that with the promise that he will be with you, that he will never leave you as you do it that he will see to it that his plan and purpose is brought about. And so wherever you are today, I just want to say to you, don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Don't look at the conditions. Don't look at your comfort. Look at your calling. Look at your consecration. Say yes to the Lord because God makes a promise to you. When I conscript you, I will be with you. I will give you everything you need. You'll have my presence. You'll have my unflagging presence with you. Verse 11. Then David gave Solomon the plans for the temple and all the rooms with it. It's like he unrolled the blueprints and says to Solomon, can I show you just how grand, just how unprecedented, just how, the scope of the artistry and the splendor of what God is asking you to do? Every time I give someone a tour of this building, we can't walk by that font. They have to stop at that bronze font right there. And they wanna touch it. And they wanna ask questions about it. Well, imagine, if you will, a, a, a circumference wider than that font. And a pillar of bronze that goes all the way from the floor all the way up to this ceiling. And the top six feet of that bronze pillar flare out like a water lily. And decorating it are these intricate patterns of lattice work and chains. And cascading down from it are 200 bronze pomegranates as decorative flourish. And that's just one. And then on the other side of the entry into this house of the Lord is another as grand and as imposing as that. And when you walk between those massive pillars and up toward the holy place, you can begin to smell the incense wafting off of the altar of incense, which is a wooden table covered with pure gold. If that incense altar were in the British Museum today, it would be the prize of their entire collection. People would line up to see it. The level of splendor and beauty and artistry on this and walking into the holy place, there are oil lamps flickering off and reflecting off of walls of solid gold. The floors are solid gold. The floors It's like standing in a jewel box, and on the walls are carved these intricate patterns of palm trees and flowers and the the heavenly creatures that we call cherubim. It's unthinkably beautiful, and of course, expensive. We have no way to know for sure, but it would not surprise me that if you totaled up the, the value of every property in the land of Israel and then set it against the value of the temple, the temple would actually be greater. But it's unthinkably important, this is the place where heaven meets earth, where God comes down among his people. And when that temple is dedicated, the cloud of God's Shekinah glory comes down and fills that temple, his tangible presence, such that the priests cannot even stand up and do what they're supposed to be doing. All they can do is fall on their face before the living God. And David's saying to Solomon, I've chosen you to build that and if you feel like him today God's word for you is the same as it was for him do not be afraid do not be discouraged for the Lord God my God is with you he will not fail you or forsake you he will see to it that all the work is finished correctly now I want to apply this also to us as a people. We know as we fast forward in scripture and in God's work in this world, that Jesus came and he called himself one greater than Solomon. And he took upon himself to build a temple that was made up of all the believers that are united to him, the church. And that we know that the glory of this temple is far surpassing that of Solomon's temple. And God has given to us here at Resurrection a certain piece in that magnificent work. We've we've tried to to crystallize our sense of discernment of what God has given us to do by saying we believe he's calling us to build a sanctuary of transformation for the Lord, the worship of the Lord, for for reaching the lost who are far from God and his church and for loving and serving the least. Can, Can I just give you kind of Can I unroll the blueprints for this sanctuary of transformation much as David did for Solomon? Because I believe it is a scope grander, more beautiful, more splendid than we may fully appreciate. At least I know than I did. About a year and a half ago, this building was just stud walls going up and it was rough construction. And at that time, I had a chance to give a tour of the construction site to an outside donor. You may not realize it, but about 10% of our reach gifts came from people who don't even go to this church. They don't live here. They receive no tangible benefit from being a part of resurrection. And they gave because they see some call of God on our lives that is needed regionally, that is needed nationally. And they said, I'm writing a check to a church I don't even attend. And he was one of these people that we were inviting to consider that. And so he came through, and we went upstairs, and I showed him. I stopped at the room that we call the Gregory Room. It's a large training kind of classroom. And I realized, you know, he doesn't go here, so he needs to understand that there's a vision beyond just us. And so I cast the biggest vision I could. I said, do you realize we've named this after St. Gregory the Great, who, who, who created training for church leaders for a millennium, his book, trained Pastors, and, and he sent out missionaries, and we believe this room will be a place where people come from all over the upper Midwest, from Minnesota, Wisconsin, Chicagoland, and here they will be trained in how do you plan a church, how do you contribute to a revival of word and sacrament. We believe there will be people trained up here who will start Easter vigils, who will go plant. Churches who will strengthen existing churches, who will create a revival, would you want to be a part of that? And he had a blank look and he said to me, You're not thinking big enough. He said, Do you have any idea what it's like out there? Do you know that there are not nearly enough thriving, vital churches like Arez? Don't you know the need? We need churches like Rez all over the country, not just in this region. I was like, oh. No, I didn't get that, but now I do. And then two months ago, Archbishop Duncan was on this stage consecrating Stuart as the bishop of this new diocese. And I don't know how many of you heard this, but I did. He said, on the day of your consecration, this diocese is already one of the strongest dioceses in the country. And my mind blocked right there, and I said, are you kidding me? There are approximately 28 other churches in our diocese, of which maybe four have an average Sunday attendance of 100 or more. So we feel new. We feel young. We feel inexperienced. We feel like we're just kind of weak and trying to figure it out. And he was saying to us prophetically in his archbishop role, no, we're looking to you, Rez. We're looking to you, Upper Midwest Diocese, to lead us, to show us a model of thriving, biblical, missional Anglicanism in which people are brought into the presence of God and transformed forever. And they transform the communities around them in which people come off of drugs and youth stand up for God and people stay in their marriages and people come back to Jesus Christ. We need you. You don't, do you see that? And suddenly I got a little afraid. I was like, oh my word, to whom much is given, much is required. And Jesus goes on to say, and to whom much more is given, much more is required. And so I just want to walk you around and kind of give you a tour of this sanctuary of transformation that God is saying, I'm choosing you to do. We said we build this sanctuary on prayer and fasting. And so right there in that room behind that curved wall is our prayer chapel. And it was intentionally built there with an outside entrance so that we could pray night and day. And starting January 12th and going all the way through Easter, we're going to have 100 days of around the clock, 24-7 prayer. We have never prayed like this before. 2,400 prayer slots. And God's saying, can you build it? I'm choosing you to build it. And then you, you, you come in here on a Wednesday night, and you know what? You can't even get a parking space around the building. And I'll tell you why. Because here in this sanctuary, there's a midweek service where we're training adults in how to minister in the power and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And then if you go upstairs, we have over 50 youth who are learning how to welcome friends and bring them to the Lord and stand strong in, against a cultural tide with a vicious undertow. And then you go over here to ResKids, and there are children who are, who are learning the Bible and taking those verses in, memorizing them so they can hold on to them later in their lives. And then you look that we're a leadership church. Did you know right now we have 25 interns who are learning how to do ministry? And then on top of that, we have a, a monthly training class for women in leadership that's customized for them. 40 to 45 women coming out every month to learn and grow in their gifts and use them for the Lord. We have this vision for the Gregory House that I talked about. Can you imagine what it would be like to have churches springing up all over the country where people learned how to bring a revival of word and sacrament here, where they're singing songs that were written by our worship team here, where they're raising up Easter vigils, where they caught the vision here. And God's saying, you're a leadership church, lead. Do you know poverty in this county has grown 168% in 10 years? So you go... Uh, how can we serve the least? I'll tell you how we're going to serve them. We're going to serve them relationally. We're going to build relationships of mutual understanding, friendship, and respect. What if 250, what if 350 of our people here at Resurrection were engaged in meaningful relationship with people who in some way are marginalized or oppressed? Do you know what that would do, rippling out in this community and in this county? We have two of our, our, our pastorates who are already looking at how can we be a part of welcoming new refugees to this country? How can their first American experience be with believers who love them in the Lord and supply their needs? We have a a calling as a bishop's church, this central church of revival, and so it's going to involve church planting. Over the last 10 years, we have planted five churches. What if in the next 10 years, and I haven't run this number by anybody else, I'm just saying myself, what if in the next 10 years we planted 10? Is that even possible? I didn't think it was until uh, Stuart and Karen and I went to the Holy Trinity Brompton Leadership Conference this spring. It's one of the most dynamic Anglican churches in the world. And over the last 30 years, guess how many churches they've planted? 30. And I all of a sudden had a faith that if God calls us to do that, he'll equip us. Do you realize that God has given us a grand, a splendid, a magnificent, and a calling that's bigger than any one of us or that we could even think of? And we should, as we hear this and as we look at those blueprints, feel both exhilarated and a little afraid. And so I want to speak into these fears, pastorally, now. I wrote down five possible fears that you may have as God has us in this place as a people. And I'll tell you mine. And as I read these, I want you to think about which ones resonate with you. Possible fear number one. As we release Stuart Moore to encourage and oversee this revival, I'm afraid I will miss him. I'm afraid the church will suffer. Do you have that fear? I can tell you what God says to you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Because the Lord God, my God, is with you. I'll be with you. Possible fear number two. God is asking me to step up more, to stretch myself, to lead in a way that I've never led before, to get engaged in community in a way I've always kept myself a little bit out from, to dive in and serve in a way that stretches me and that I don't even know if I can succeed in. Can I do it? I might fail. I gotta admit, there have been moments here over the last few months as Stuart has taken on even a larger leadership role as bishop that he's come to me and said, Kevin, would you lead this meeting or would you maybe step up and teach this moment in our church? And and my own insecurities have sometimes kicked up and I've been, God, I'm not Stuart. He has an unusual national leadership gift. There's a reason why he's the youngest person tapped to be in the house of bishops. And, and so, you know what God said to me when I said, God, I'm not steward. He's like, yeah, I actually know that. <laughs> Don't be afraid. <laughs> oh, God has fun with me. Okay, possible fear number four. I might feel the nudge to help with a church plant. That thought has actually gone through my mind a few times, and yet I'm afraid because if I leave Rez, what would it be like to not be at Rez, to be with something kind of new and a little shaky, and to not be here with my friends? Or maybe you have the flip side of that, which is, I'm afraid some of my friends are going to be led by the Lord to go do a new work, and I'm going to have to say goodbye Uh, This one is, is real for me, friends. About three years ago, I was preaching a sermon over at the high school about the Holy Spirit being a centrifugal force. That as you see what God does in the world, so often the Holy Spirit comes down on his people to unite them to the Lord. But then he sends them out. He thrusts them out and says, I'm gonna send you to Judea, I'm sending you to Samaria, I'm sending you to the uttermost parts of the earth, that it is a natural part of the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that it's a centrifugal force. There was a there was actually an anointing on that sermon. and, And afterwards, I was praying for people on the side during communion. And who came over to me but, but Chris and Sarah Scherf. Many of you know them. And they said to me, oh, thank you for that sermon. That really spoke to us today. And I warmed a little bit. And they said, because the Holy Spirit's nudging us that we're supposed to move, to Alabama. I was like, not you. That, that was like a theological concept. That was a rhetorical flourish. I didn't mean you. <laughs> and yet they did it anyway. You know, Well, you know what? You have no idea how hard it is when I I love people, and I, and I, I just, it's so hard to see them go, and yet I know it's in the Lord. But God says to us, his word to us when he calls us to do something hard is, do not be afraid. I'll be with you. Possible fear number five. I know that I will be called upon to give in a radically generous way that I will be called to do something kind of crazy and sacrificial. I don't know if I can do it one more time. If that fear is in your heart, can I just speak the word of God to you this morning and say, whatever God calls you to give, he'll be with you. He will not fail you. He says, trust me and don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. The work of the Lord will be finished correctly. Oh, friends, what call is it that you have on your lives to help build this sanctuary of transformation? Are you afraid? Because we need you to do your part. We need you to do whatever it is that God has given you to do. I was really inspired this week by this, this kind of story, which I was not aware of. Have you ever flown on a 747 jumbo jet? many of you have, I know. When you did, you probably were not aware that it was the first wide-body plane ever conceived, invented, and built. That before that time, the, the, the main plane was the 707. Listen, the 747 is two and a half times as large. It can hold up to 660 people. In order to build it, the Boeing engineers had to create a new kind of engine that wasn't enough. Then they had to build a new kind of wing flap that had never been designed before. Then they had to build a building big enough in which to put, assemble a 747. It is the largest building in the world. And the expense of doing all this... Was, was unthinkable. They, at one point, they had over $2 billion in debt. They set a world record for the amount of money owed by a single company to the banks. And yet, because they took that risk, and because they took that inventiveness, and because they took that innovation, they dominated commercial aviation for decades. And a friend of mine who's a pastor led the funeral for a man who worked on the 747. 747. And following the service, he, he said to the widow, Isn't it amazing that your husband got a chance to work on that remarkable, game changing aircraft? And she said, You know, the truth is, he worked on one switchbox that was smaller than a loaf of bread. That's all he worked on for 15 years. But when that massive 747 rolled down the runway and for the first time ever lifted up off the ground, it was the happiest day of his life. What is it, friends, that God has given you to do? I say to you in the Lord, do it. Be strong and do the work. Don't be afraid or discouraged because the Lord God, my God, will be with you. Amen.